January was a long, cold year, wasn't it? Today is uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Anybody cheering for the Chiefs? <laughs> Anybody cheering for the 49ers? <laughs> yes, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Um, it's also... <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> it's also Groundhog Day. And uh, he saw his shadow, so, you know, six more weeks. See how that goes. Um, Esther also pointed out that it's the second day of the second month of 2020, which means it's 0202-2020. Right? So today's a big day, don't you think? <laughs> All right, we're in the book of Esther today. Esther and Ruth are the only two books of the Bible that are given the female names of the female main characters that the books are all about. The only two books in the Bible, Ruth and Esther. We're a hundred years after the Babylonian captivity. It's the fourth century BC. We're talking about God's people, but the location has jumped. We're not talking about the promised land. We're not talking about Jerusalem. We're not talking about the people returning from captivity to their homeland. We're not talking about the rebuilding of the temple. We're talking about the Jewish people who chose to remain in Persia. Now, why would you remain in Persia? Maybe you got accustomed to the culture there. Maybe you grew up there because they've been there for years and years and decades, and maybe that grew to be all that they knew. Maybe they didn't have the resources to go back to the homeland that some Jews had. I don't know. They stayed in Susa, the capital city of Persia. That's the location where Esther takes place, in Susa, in Persian Empire. So we have four main characters. There's Esther, the main character, the heroess of the story. Esther is actually a Persian name. Her Hebrew name was actually Hadassah. And then you have her cousin, Mordecai, Esther's relative, who takes in Esther as his own daughter. And Mordecai is a Persian name as well. It might actually talk about their god, Marduk, Mordecai. Uh, then there's the king of Persia. He's like a drunken pushover in the story. Many people point to the historical figure, um, King Xerxes of the Persian Empire, being this character, King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, this drunken pushover in the story. And then the final of the four is, the Haim, is Haman, the prime minister. He's like the sly villain. Every story needs a villain, right? Good versus evil. I mean, if you've noticed anything in pop culture, that theme is there. But we're going to talk about how the lines tend to blur in reality, don't they? It's often hard to know what is right and what is wrong, where to draw the line, where to stay silent, where to stand up, right? Oftentimes it's difficult. One unique element of the book of Esther is that it never mentions God directly. Think about that. The whole book, I think there are 10, 11 chapters in the whole book, never mentions God directly. Never talks about God being at work. Never talks about people praying to God. Never talks about people talking about God never mentions God specifically in the book of Esther. Maybe you're thinking, we're going through a journey through the Bible and we're talking about how the whole Bible points to Jesus. It's the story of God's redemptive plan for humanity, which he loves, which he created. How could it not mention God? Well, it's this brilliant literary technique. 
leaving out the obvious. So that as you read it, you are forced to come to your own conclusions, do your own investigating, make your own observances of where God is working. Doesn't that sound like real life? Like, wouldn't it be great if you were living your life and some sort of curveball situation comes and life hands you, you know, deals you a bad hand of cards and you think, wouldn't it be great if there was a commentator's voice just jump in and say, and then God said, or and then God caused this to happen, or then God was setting up the stage for, but it doesn't often happen that way, does it? We're left in life to make our own observations and investigations of where God is at and what he's doing based on what we read in the Bible, based on our conversations in prayer with other Christians to see where God is at work in our reality today. The story of Esther is full of blurred lines, gray areas, moral ambiguity. There's murder, drunkenness, and sex. It's an X-rated book if there ever was one. Here's my main point. When life gives you lemons, maybe it's so that you can make lemonade. I think when that phrase was originally written, there's a little bit of discussion on who used it first, but it was used in a eulogy for an actor back in the early 19th century. And this actor was born with many uh, shortcomings and issues in his life, and he had to struggle his way through and make the most of it. And at his eulogy, his friend said, he was given lemons and he made lemonade. Esther has a really tough situation she not only makes the most of it, but I think God points out through the book of Esther that the situation was the setup. The situation was the birthing ground for the plan and work of God. I don't think God just wants us to take a bad situation and make the most of it. I think God wants us to see a bad situation for the opportunities that it presents and the fact that God is working behind the scenes. He's never absent, is he? God's always at work. And sometimes in our deepest, darkest moments, when we're in seasons of life where we just sit back and think, how could any of this be the plan of God? Oftentimes, it's the setup for what's just around the corner of God's plan in our lives. So that's what we want to talk about. Esther chapter 1 begins with a party thrown by the Persian king. I keep mentioning that he's kind of a drunken pushover. This party lasted 180 days. Six months. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but the parties that I attend last a couple hours and then they're done. This party lasted six months. And then you know what he did after the party? He threw another party. And the next party lasted seven days, a whole week, which isn't much compared to six months. But after you've been partying for six months to party for a whole another week, that's crazy. And here's what happens. Esther chapter 1 and verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he's been partying for 187 days. He is drunk. He is blackout, fall on his face, drunk. He commanded, verse 11, if you jump there, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. The sense that you get, commentators have pointed out, is that Vashti was to appear with only her crown on. And that's all I'm going to say. Verse 12. 
But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Good for her. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So he asks the wise men, he asks his counselors, he asks his friend, his nobles, what should we do about this? And they said, get rid of Queen Vashti. You can find a better queen anyway. And make a statement of her. Because ladies are going to catch on. Make a decree that each woman should be like a slave to her husband and the husband should be the master of his wife. Because they're going to get the hint that if Queen Vashti can say no to sexual exploitation, then they can say no as well. So make a mockery of Queen Vashti and kick her out of the throne. So that's exactly what he did. How ridiculous, right? There is abuse around this entire story. Abuse of alcohol, abuse of relationships, abuse of power, abuse of position. It's just terrible. And this is the Bible. Who said it was boring? Here's another point. Don't make a decision when you're drunk. Better yet, the Bible says, don't be drunk. That's just good biblical advice, isn't it? This is how the story begins. Uh, Tim Mackey says it's like a really bad soap opera. Because what happens next is a beauty pageant, believe it or not. Esther chapter 2 and verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him, who gave him the great advice of kick the queen out because she won't do exactly what you want, they said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces. Remember, there's 127 provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Well, of course it pleased the king, right? This guy has no moral character. So what would he rather do than sit at a beauty pageant, select the most beautiful woman, and make her his queen? Right? Doesn't that sound... He's a party animal anyway. He has no morals. That is such a great idea. The king's going to go for it, so that's what they do. If there are 127 provinces in the empire of Persia, just imagine how many young women would have been represented. Let's say there's at least a couple beautiful young virgins in each province. That means hundreds of women took part in this beauty pageant. Josephus suggests that there were 400 young virgins competing for the heart of the king. Now, if that doesn't spell drama... I don't know what does. It sounds like a really bad version of The Bachelor, right? 400 women fighting for the heart of one man. Think about the cat fights that must have gone on. Because if they win this competition, they become queen. Think about that. Think about what's on the line. And there's not a huge percentage that it would be you who was chosen. Now, this is where we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. They're Jewish people living in Susa, the capital city of the Persians. For whatever, for whatever reason, they decide to remain in Persia instead of returning to Israel. The backstory is Esther's parents had died. She was an orphan. And Mordecai took Esther in, being the nearest of kin, I guess, and became her adopted father. He sounds like a good guy. But doesn't it sound like Esther's been dealt a bad hand of cards? 
Like she's just been given a bag of lemons with life. Her parents are gone. She's living in a foreign country as a captive, basically. And this is where the story begins. Esther was an orphan. Well, Esther's a beautiful woman as well and is selected for the king's beauty pageant, which sounds more like she was taken into custody and forced to go to the palace. Jewish tradition says that Mordecai tried to hide her and the authorities found her and took her from Mordecai by force to enter into this competition in the kingdom with the king. Sounds like another bad hand has been dealt to Esther, don't you think? A little more lemons to add to the bag. Just picture this with me. There are hundreds of women in the harem of the king, the area of the palace where the king's women lived, and they're competing for the affection of the king. Whoever is crowned Miss Persia, 4th century BC, would win the, the queen, the, the royal position next to the king. And here's a key point. Throughout the entire experience, Esther never let on to the fact that she was Jewish. She hid her identity the whole time. Mordecai encouraged her to do so. You know, Esther's name is a Persian name, and it means moon. It also means hidden. The moon hides during the day, right? It's on the opposite side of the planet. You can't see it. little science lesson there for you. I bet you didn't know that. But that kind of adds to the identity of the story, doesn't it? She's keeping a secret of her actual identity as one of God's chosen people. And in fact, her relative Rachel, because she's a Benjamite, Rachel was as well, they were both described in the same way as being beautiful in appearance and lovely to look at. And they both were good at keeping secrets, as you can read through the story. Esther kept a secret. I find that really interesting. Do we have to begin each conversation by telling people that we're Christians? Is it wrong to hide your Christian identity? Is there ever a good reason to do so? You know, when you read through the book of Proverbs, you see this constant theme, chapter after chapter. There is wisdom in keeping your mouth shut and not in the plenty of words. Over and over again, you see this theme. There are times to speak up, but there's also a lot of wisdom in being quiet as well. How do you know which to do? How do you know when you should stay silent? And how do you know when you should speak up? How do you know when you should stand back and not get involved? And how do you know when is the time to stand up as a Christian, to stand up for what you believe in? It gets really tricky, and there are a lot of blurred lines in life. In Atlantic Canada in 2020, I would not encourage you to start every conversation with, Hi, I'm Josh, I'm a Christian. I don't think that's the best route. I think the Bible says, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think we need to have some tact in how we approach people in what we believe. I think we need to demonstrate it with our lives before we ever open our mouths. Because people don't care what you have to say until they know how much you care, right? And your actions say a thousand words. Just a little bit of food for thought. But talk about a tough situation. This was no fairy tale, okay? King Xerxes is no Prince Charming. This is not a golden ball. Esther and hundreds of women waited to see the king for 12 months. And during these 12 months, they went through these 
beautification processes, I guess. They were given ointments and oils and perfumes. For 12 months, they waited to see the king. And that was part of the reason to prepare them and their beauty, but also part of the reason many commentators suggest is so that they would know that they were not pregnant. And that should let you in on a little bit of the uh, sexual promiscuity of this whole competition, as we're going to find out. This is terrible, but this is the history recorded in the Bible. How many values do you think Esther had to compromise in that position? Do you think the food was kosher? Do you think the clothing they were given to wear was becoming of a godly woman? Do you think that marrying the Persian king would not fly in the face of any of God's Old Testament laws about his people? It can be so difficult to determine between right and wrong, can't it? And I'm a black and white guy. I don't like the gray area stuff. I wish you could just set a policy for everything and then you wouldn't have to worry about anything, but that's not real life, is it? There are so many gray areas and there are so many times where we think, is this the moment where God wants me to step up as a Christian or is this the moment where he wants me to stand back? I don't know. And we're, we're forced to wait on the prompting of the Spirit, which is a really healthy place to be. Each woman was summoned to the king one by one. Each young virgin had one night with the king. And the next morning she would be taken to another harem, another house of women. And then the next lady would be called upon. One chance to please the king. If she pleased the king, the king was delighted in her. The king would summon her by name. I just feel dirty even giving this story. There's a lot of depth to these statements and what took place. I... Uh, want to keep it PG. It's pretty clear what kind of contest that this is, isn't it? It's a grossly sexual picture, and I don't think the hundreds of young ladies had any say in the matter. This is terrible. Now it's Esther's turn. Yikes. What's she going to do? How will she not compromise her biblical values? How will she not go against what she believes? What would you do? There's no exit. You can't just leave. You can't quit. You can't walk away. Esther 2.15 When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, which I think is less about her beauty and more about God's providence and plan. Verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Do you see the moral mixing in all of this? I mean, there are some really blurred lines here. I don't, I don't know how Esther's night with the king went, and I don't want our minds to wander too far there, but I'm guessing she really had to make some compromises on her values. Jewish tradition says she just let it happen. She was a victim. I've chatted with other people who think she took as much advantage of the situation as she could to try and gain that position as queen for the sake of her people. I don't know 
how it took place. But Esther wins favor, and God makes it work within his plan. God is working behind the scenes of a messy, blurred line situation. Here's the temptation when we study biblical characters, and I have to fight against this all the time. We tend to see biblical characters as either heroes or villains, right? Good or evil. We see the heroes of the faith. We read Hebrews chapter 11 and all these people who demonstrated such faith. But when you really read their lives, they made some messed up, terrible, murderous, adulterous decisions because they're real people like you and I. They're not these golden spectacles up on a pedestal that have never touched the dirt of the earth in their life. They're real salt of the earth people who've struggled through issues like you and me. And biblical characters are given in such a way, many of them lacking a lot of detail about who they actually were, so that we can see it as if it were a mirror and see our own lives in their lives. And we're left to make observances about who God is and how he works in the lives of his people. There's only one perfect character in the Bible, and it's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Every other character in the Bible is fully messy human and live in, in reality. The heroes of the faith were men and women who messed up along the journey. But there's this pattern that you can see throughout biblical characters. And we looked at it 10 months ago in the book of Judges, if any of you remember this pattern. Things were good. They forgot God. They got themselves into trouble and they had to cry out to God in their distress. And God showed his redemptive rescuer heart and brought them out of their slavery because of their faith. You can see that time and time again through biblical characters and it paints the same pattern for our life. We need to make a decision based on the redemptive qualities of who God is and his saving work through Jesus Christ. I just want us to have this framework for studying biblical characters. They are real. They aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. Humanity is inherently evil. We're all born with a sin nature. That's the reality of the story. Somehow out of 400 women, Esther is chosen. God has to be at work in that. 400 women and Esther is chosen. Esther becomes queen of Persia. A Jewish captive becomes royalty. It's a real Cinderella story except for the charm, except for the romance, and definitely except for the happily ever after because the story is just beginning. But the timing couldn't be more perfect because at the end of chapter 2, we see Uncle Mordecai who's seated at the gate of the king. We see him at the gate of the king time and time again in the story, which points to his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his intercession on Esther's behalf, waiting at the gate of the king to see how Esther was doing, to see what was going on. The gate of the king was like the hub of information in society. And that's where we see Mordecai. At the end of chapter 2, he overhears two of, the, two of the servants of the king, and they're plotting the king's murder. So he sends word to Esther, who brings that news to the king, uh, giving Mordecai all of the, all of the um, praise and benefit for giving that. And then the threat is neutralized, Mordecai is recorded in the book of the king as having saved the king. Things are starting to look good for the Jewish people living in Susa. Now they're seeing the benefits of Esther in that position. 
They have a spokesperson before the king. Things are starting to look good. But then that's when Haman comes on the scene. Because there are no happily ever afters this side of eternity. Esther chapter 3 and verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. The Agagites are descendants of the Canaanites, which we know have a track record for being the enemies of God's people. And advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So basically, he's the prime minister. Verse 2. All the king's servants who are at the king's gate, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. That's what I keep thinking when I read that. At the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded to do so. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. It sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they had spoken to him day after day, you see the steadfastness and the faithfulness of Mordecai day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now why could Mordecai give his identity, but Esther could not? I don't have an answer for you. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Don't make decisions when you're drunk. Don't make decisions when you're angry. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, 127 provinces, from Asia to Africa. All of the Jewish people would be annihilated. Kind of has a Holocaust tone, doesn't it? But do you see how God is setting the stage? God's at work through all this. This setback is actually a setup. God is preparing for the display of redemption that he's going to perform for his people through the courage of Esther. God's bringing all these circumstances to a point. Haman goes to the king. Remember, the king is kind of like a drunk pushover in the story. Here's the result of their conversation. Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews. And get this, young and old, women and children in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, they actually cast dice to find out what the date would be and to plunder their goods. Verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province, 20, 127, proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. Verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order from the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I mean, how bad can it get? Do you think any of the Jewish people, Mordecai's people, ever went up to Mordecai and said, uh, Mordecai, you know, we're all going to die, and it's your fault. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Persia, and we're all going to die because you won't bow. 
Mordecai is not listed with any other Jews who didn't bow. It's just Mordecai. Haman's mad at Mordecai. Do you think any of the Jewish people went to Mordecai and said, next time Haman comes by, could you just do like a half bow? Could you just do like a head nod? Like maybe could you just blur the lines a little bit? Like God's going to forgive you. Could you just like maybe let your moral compass take a bit of a backseat here and just do this for the sake of your people? I mean, you got thousands of people relying on you, Mordecai. Mordecai, maybe you could spend less time at the king's gate out in the public in the face of everyone and maybe you could spend more time at home with the door closed. Maybe this whole thing would blow over. I'm sure Mordecai got those comments. Noah got those comments when he was building the ark. I'm sure Mordecai did. It's not easy to stand up for what's right. Sometimes it feels like you're the only one, doesn't it? Mordecai could have so easily agreed. The whole city of Susa is thrown into confusion. Then we come to Esther chapter 4. Mordecai and the Jews are weeping and mourning in sackcloth and ashes all over the city. Mordecai's at the gate of the king again, where he consistently was. Maybe he had a job there. Esther finds out what's going on because one of the servants takes word to Esther. Esther seems unaware. She seems somewhat out of touch of what's going on. She sends word back to Mordecai with some fresh, clean clothes. Mordecai just put on clean clothes. But that, that wasn't going to solve the issue, was it? So they start this conversation back and forth. There's a servant who runs out to the gate to talk to Mordecai, runs back into the harem to talk to Esther, runs back to the gate to talk to Mordecai. And this is how this conversation happens. Mordecai asks Esther to speak on behalf of the Jews to the king. And Esther points out to Mordecai, this could mean my death. If I approach the king without being summoned by the king, it could mean my head. That was the rule. And here's what Mordecai says. Esther chapter 4 and verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. How many know that God is the only refuge in times of trouble? It doesn't matter if you're in a king's palace or in a peddler's, wherever peddlers live. God is the only refuge. You won't escape even if you're in the king's palace. Verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's got to be the key phrase in the whole book right there, doesn't it? Famous words. Two things I want to point out. First of all, Mordecai believed that if Esther didn't have the courage or the character to step up in this time, God would provide another way. Because Mordecai knew that God is a way maker. It doesn't matter how dark the night, God is the one who can turn on the light. It doesn't matter how dead the end, God can open the next door. God can always provide a way. There is always hope because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. It doesn't matter what situation you're in, God can bring hope to the hopeless. Second thing, Esther was in the position she was in for such a time as this. I love 
that phrase. Now is the time for Esther to reveal her identity, her beliefs, to stand up for what she knew was right, to stand up for God's people and God's promise. God knows what season we're in. Mordecai said, for such a time as this. Maybe you're in a season of life where you think, once I get to the next season, then I'll be able to stand up for God. But God has prepared you through seasons and in the season that you're in for the time when he calls you to stand up. There are so many excuses we can use that it's not the right time yet. We talked about that in the book of Haggai two weeks ago. It's so easy to make that excuse. Mordecai says, for such a time as this, God is preparing you in the seasons of silence and secrecy for a time when he's going to call on you to stand. The Holy Spirit will make it clear when to stand up and when to quiet down. If we're in tune with the Spirit, if we're in the Word, if we're talking to God in prayer, if we're in a community of believers, the Holy Spirit will make it clear for us. There's always going to be excuses. You know what? Character isn't built in the moment of trial. Character is built over a season and it's revealed in the moment of trial. Esther must have been a woman of character. You can look down through history and it's very rare, probably non-existent, to see somebody who has no character and when the fight heats up, that's when they step up. Doesn't happen. Character builds over time, and then it's revealed and refined in the fire. Esther must have been a woman of character. Because when this moment came, she rose to the challenge by God's grace. Esther seemed somewhat disconnected and unaware of what was going on, and Mordecai had to prompt her to action. Do you have people in your life who are willing to prompt you to action and encourage you that the season in your in your life that you're in is actually an opportunity to stand up for God? Do you have friends who will do that for you? Esther chapter 4 and verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Verse 16. Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. What are you willing to die for? Family? Spouse? Children? Maybe some close friends? Esther was willing to die for her people. What if we ask the question this way, what are you living your life for? Because every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, we are spending our life on something, aren't we? And I don't want to get to the end of my life and have a bag of lemons when there's a world full of thirsty people who need lemonade. God has put us in seasons of life, and he has put us in circles of influence, and he, have, he has given us the opportunities that we have so that we can allow him to make something of where he has us. And Esther rose to the challenge. Esther was a woman of courage and character. 
You know, Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him, which is basically an invitation to die. It's an invitation to die to self and selfishness, to throw away all of the excuses that we might use as to why we can't stand up for Christ. Our generation wants something to live for, and we have something worth dying for. We're part of something so much greater than our 75 years on this earth. We are a part of changing people's lives for eternity. And this goes beyond to what are you living for, what are you dying for? What's life about? It's about helping helpless people find a God who wants to buy them out of their sinful situation through the death and blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. That's what we need to be willing to die for. That's what we need to be willing to spend our lives on. We threw a statistic on the screen two weeks ago that the average person spends 30-some years sleeping. What are we spending our lives for? The time came for Esther to stand up for her identity as one of God's people and risk her life for the redemption of her people. Life is such a fragile thing, isn't it? Last Sunday, we, we read about the tragic helicopter accident down in Los Angeles that took the life of a number of people. Um, the legendary basketball player Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, 41 years old, 13 years old, gone. And then you look on the news this week about the coronavirus. 14,000 people infected, 300 people have passed. Life is fragile. We get so comfortable in our lives, don't we? And once in a while, God allows for us to have some wake-up calls. What are we spending our lives on? Here's how Esther goes about it. She approaches the king and praise God, he receives her by holding out his scepter. And she invites him to a banquet with Haman. And then at this banquet, she invites the king and Haman to an even more exclusive banquet the next day. This, this book is full of parties, right? And they're drinking here. The wine is flowing. Come to an even more exclusive party tomorrow, and then I have a presentation to make. Haman walks out of the banquet. He's on top of the world. He feels like the man. He's in the most exclusive circle of circles. And you know who he sees next? He walks out of the palace, out of the king's gate, and there's Mordecai. Mordecai's always in the king's gate. And Mordecai refuses to bow. And Haman, somebody who has the world by the tail, he's at the top of the Persian Empire, which is like, a quarter, a third of the world, and he is number three in charge. You'd think that'd be enough. But the fact that Mordecai won't bow sends him into a tailspin. And he runs home to his wife and to his friends, and he's just whining about Mordecai. And why won't Mordecai bow? And all of this is meaningless unless Mordecai bows. Can you see who's in control in the story? And you know what his wife and his friends tell him? Have a gallows be made, probably a big stake, a big pole, set it up in the front yard, 75 feet high, and tomorrow morning, make Mordecai an example to everyone that if you don't bow, you're going to get stuck on the end of the toothpick. 
That's what he was going to do. He was going to make an example by executing Mordecai. Pretty gruesome. It's the Bible. Whoever said it was boring. Meanwhile, in the palace, this is awesome. This is God's timing, God's providence all over it. You know there are no coincidences in life, right? Your life is not a result of the universe dealing you a certain hand of cards. God is at work. God has a plan. He's in control. Meanwhile, in the palace, at this exact same moment, the king can't sleep. Maybe he ate too much. Maybe he drank too much at Esther's banquet, but he can't sleep. So he needs a bedtime story. So a servant comes in and starts reading the chronicles of the king. And lo and behold, he flips to the page, the chapter, the paragraph of Mordecai's story being recorded. You remember Mordecai overheard the two servants in the king's gate, and he sent word to the king, save the king's life. So this is the bedtime reading that's supposed to put the king to sleep. And he jumps out of bed, it says, and he asks the question, what has been done to honor the person who saved the king? What have we done for Mordecai? And the servants say, well, we haven't done anything. And just as that exact moment happens, Mordecai knocks on the door. Haman knocks on the door. Sorry, I'm getting a lot of names in here. Haman knocks on the door and he comes in. Haman is seeking to take the life of Mordecai. The king is seeking to honor Mordecai for saving his life. Do you see the irony in all of this? This isn't just coincidence. So the king says, Haman, before you say what you want to say, I got a question for you. How do you honor somebody who is worth honoring? I love this. Let's read it. We should read it. Esther chapter 6 and verse 6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, he's thinking to himself now. We get the little, the little speech bubble up here. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I'm third in command. Who else would it be? So Haman's thinking about himself here. Verse 7, Haman said to the king, Well, for the man that the king delights to honor, let me tell you what should be done. Let royal robes be brought, which the king himself has worn, and the horse that the king himself has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Guess whose crown he's probably thinking of? The king's crown. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor because he's you know, too incredible to dress himself. He needs somebody else to do it. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I love this. You can just see Haman's face, right? Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, because he's always at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Do it all. And Haman, having walked in to seek Mordecai's life, is now commanded to seek Mordecai's honor. How crazy is that? Do you believe in a God that can flip any situation on its head like that? In one conversation. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. Think about that picture just for a moment. Mordecai's standing there in front of the mirror, and 
Haman is buttoning up his shirt. Just think about that. You can just cut the tension with a knife. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, blah, 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 blah. Right? I mean, how drastically can a story just flip on its head? You know, when you look at this book and you lay the chapters out, if we had a whiteboard and we could write the theme of each chapter on a post-it note and put it up on the whiteboard, you see Haman's downfall, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. It gets down to chapter 8 and the tables turn and you see Mordecai's rise to the end of the book. It's just beautiful how God flips the story on its head. Esther chapter 6 and verse 12. Mordecai returned to the king's gate because he's a man of faithfulness, steadfastness, always where he needs to be. But Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered and Haman told his wife's arrest, you wouldn't believe what they did to me today. And he said to him, Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, she can see the writing on the wall, is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. There's no way you can't see God at work in all this. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. He doesn't even have time to cry because it's on to the next thing. Here we go. It's getting spicy. The drama's spilling over. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. Here's banquet number two the next day. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, what would that have been like to be Haman? You're in there. It's the second day of the feast with the king and the queen. Oh, man. The king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Do you see how he's kind of a drunken pushover in the story? Whatever you want. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If you have found favor, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? Verse 6, Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Oh boy, here we go. Verse 7, The king arose in wrath from his wine drinking. He's drunk again. And went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life. The tables have really turned. He's begging for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You don't think. Verse 8. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, I just picture this guy, kind of like this fly on the wall, standing here watching this happen just enjoying every moment for the terrible soap opera that the whole thing is. Harbona speaks up, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, and says, uh, King, you do know 
Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's front yard. Haman's house, 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. And the king said, hang him on that. This is the Bible, right? Verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he himself had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Don't miss the irony in all this. My fear is we'll read this and it'll be a nice story from the Bible. We won't really get the historical implications and the fact that God can do the same in our lives today. He can flip terrible situations around in one conversation. This isn't a coincidence. This is God's plan, God's providence, God's control over the events of mankind. And Haman dies in Mordecai's place. Haman dies for his enemy. Unwillingly, he dies for his enemy. You know, Jesus Christ willingly died for us when we were enemies of God, didn't he? That cross that was set up by humanity on which the divine hung in our place, the cross that was erected for us, Jesus Christ took our place and died a shameful death for us, for you and for me. Esther 8 Verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Mordecai literally went from the bottom in ashes and sackcloth at the gate of the king to the very position that Haman once held. Esther, Mordecai, and the king then seek a way to save the Jewish people because the 13th of the month of Adar was approaching. And we remember from the story of Daniel in the lion's den that King Darius couldn't revoke the decree that he had made and signed and stamped with his signet ring the same was true here. He couldn't revoke the decree that he had made, so they had to come up with a way to protect God's people. So what they did was they made a new decree that now all Jews everywhere in Persia could defend themselves and fight for themselves and take up arms and prepare for battle against the people that would seek their annihilation on the 13th of Adar. And they won. They won a great battle. And we read in Esther chapter 8 and verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden, great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You know, God orchestrated the events surrounding this story. 
God instilled the courage within Esther to stand up in the time when she needed to stand up. God instilled the steadfast faithfulness in Mordecai to be at the king's gate day after day and not bow down. God is the center of this story. In our own lives, it can be really hard to see what's the plan? What's going to happen? Where is God at work? What is God doing? Oftentimes, we translate God's silence as absence, don't we? If I don't hear God speak, if I don't feel the Holy Spirit prompt, if I don't see clear opportunities where I need to be Jesus' hands and feet, then God must not be here. God must not have a plan for this season of life. There must be sin in my life. There must be all these factors that are keeping God away from my life. But what if we viewed the situations and the circumstances that we're in as the background for God's display of his redemptive qualities and character for mankind? What if we believed the situations that we were in was God's platform for a display of his greatness and his glory? What if instead of trying to make the most of the season of life that we're in, instead we saw God as the author of life and the author of circumstances, and we chose to believe that he brought these things into our life to prepare us for a season around the corner, to prepare us for such a time as this. That's really easy to say from a stage on a Sunday morning, isn't it? It's a little harder when we're in the reality and the depths and circumstances of life. But believe this promise. God is at work. God has a plan. God is in control. In the end, God wins. Jesus Christ can bring hope to any situation. Every situation that we face today, we see the results of sin. We get so easily entangled in sin. But Jesus Christ brought freedom from sin. And it's in his name that we can experience freedom and hope and joy and meaning and purpose in life in every situation. It's only by Jesus Christ. God has a plan for your life and there is immense meaning and purpose in every stage of your life whether we can see it, whether we choose to embrace it all or not. Maybe life has dealt you a bag of lemons so that you have the opportunity to make that lemonade. I just want to close in a word of prayer today. And I want to specifically pray for the situation that you're in. And I don't know, I can't begin to understand Maybe some of us have gone through joys and triumph. Maybe some of us have gone through sorrows and pain. Life can be like a roller coaster that way. I just want to pray for your situation today that somehow God would help you to see what he's preparing for, for you and what he's preparing you for in the situation, the season of life that you're in. So can we pray? Father God, I just want to thank you so much for all you've done in our lives. That's really easy to say when times are good. God, I think about people who might be going through pain and sorrow and loss. People who might be in seasons of life where you seem distant. God, I pray that you would ignite their relationship with you. That you, they would just experience your presence all over again anew and afresh. 
And that in a dark season of life, you would be the light that invades their soul, Father. God, I pray for those of us who are in comfortable, maybe joy-filled seasons of life. God, help us not to forget your blessing. God, help us not to forget that we don't achieve where we're at because of our hard work, because of who we are, but it's only by your hand and by your blessing in our life. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your plan in our lives. God, we thank you that you don't give us the whole story. You just show us the next step or two. God, I pray that we would trust you as we go around the river bend, as we wait to see what life holds, as we wait for the next season. But God, if this is the season of life that you are calling us to stand up, God, I pray you'd give us the courage and the faithfulness to do so. God, I pray that we have been preparing our character so that when that time comes, it can shine forth like gold refined in the fire because of our relationship with you, because of the robes of righteousness that we have because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if this is the season to stand up, God, make us courageous, make us bold, whether it's at our workplace or our school, our community, in our circle of influence, help us to stand boldly for you. God, give us tact. God, help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Help us to know when to stand. Help us to know when to be quiet. God, I thank you for your will and for your work in our lives. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And he's the message that we preach this morning. God, we thank you for all you've done in our lives. We just pray for the rest of this day, this week. God, that you would bless and work through your people. Let your will be done in this place, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.